Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a wonderful hour. Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner are in studio. We're going to talk specifically about a book that Dr. Jim Bilby wrote called Understanding Transgender Identities, Four Views. We're looking forward to having a lively discussion about his book, and we're going to do that uh, without any further delay. So I think what I better do is just take 60 seconds and then um, bring on Jim and Peter. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio. When Faith Radio began over 70 years ago under the leadership of Dr. Billy Graham, it was students at Northwestern who gave sacrificially to put the first station on the air. Since then, our ministry has grown to 20 AM and FM signals across the upper Midwest and in Hartford, plus listeners connecting with us from across the country and around the world through online and app listening. We still rely on the sacrificial and generous giving of listeners like you who may not be college students, but are students of God's Word with a desire to know Jesus better and follow Him closer. So would you stand with us in this new year with a monthly gift of $40 and continue the legacy, a legacy that includes the daily Bible teaching and compelling conversations that help bring about changed lives. If you're on our mailing list, you'll receive a letter from me this month inviting you to make a founder's gift of $40 a month. Or you can make your gift online today at MyFaithRadio.com. I've got Dr. James Bilby and Dr. Peter Kapster in the studio, and they are great friends and colleagues, and Peter decided to sit in on this uh, discussion with Jim, which makes me very happy, because I think, Peter, you'll be able to ask some excellent questions. We'll see. Yeah, I your, so. uh, Yeah. And uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Okay, under- understanding transgender identities for views. Um, tell me one of these views. Yeah. So, well, you know, actually, let's go, go back just a little bit. Um, my buddy Paul and I did this book. When we did this book, we wanted to do a multiple views book. Yep. Because I really think that at so many of these difficult issues, it's really hard to understand any one view without understanding other views and how they all have these competing ways of thinking about this incredibly complex issue. So, creating this conversation where these different views come out uh, is a really important one. Um, so, just really quick uh there's a really conservative view on this that basically says uh gender is this binary thing male and female god created them and in fact there's even some really specific things where males were created for this and females were created for this and that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. and we need to wrap our heads around that uh second view uh defended by uh, mark yarhouse um is, yeah, you know what? In our Genesis 3 world, things are a little more complicated than that. And there's a variety of psychological phenomenon that can occur that can have people get really confused about their genders. And we need to be sympathetic with that. We're not throwing out the biblical language of gender being binary, but Mm -hmm. we're acknowledging in this world it's really complicated. Uh, Third view, defended uh, by Megan DeFranza, um, it points out that God's creation is this really complex thing. And there are a whole set of individuals, for instance, 
that are intersex. Uh, intersex individuals have um, complex genitalia, mm-hmm. and they may there may, may be genetic issues. Uh, they may be instead of X Y and X X, they may be X X X Y, and there may be all sorts of things. There are things that can happen in the womb that can uh, affect how gender is expressed for people. Uh, a, a woman who is you know seems to be a woman other ways can have testicles and therefore much higher testosterone counts. Uh, that's a case of there's a pretty common news story a couple um, years back about Coster uh, Seminaya, a mm-hmm. an 800 runner, a female apparently female 800 runner from uh, South Africa who is was just killing all the world records and they found out well she has implanted testicles that are creating this, these really high testosterone counts. Um, and so Megan points out that our world includes that and that how are we going to make sense of that? And it seems that gender is not as simply binary. There's these middle cases where it seems kind of complex. And then the last view is is represented by Justin Tannis, who is a transgender person himself and um, talks a lot about how God has created this incredible diversity Everything from, you know, really, really manly men to, you know, Barbie on the other side and the whole continuum in between. And that he says, instead of trying to draw lines, that we should embrace the diversity of all of that. And he actually refers to a couple of passages in Matthew, um, Jesus' teaching on eunuchs and refers to an idea of uh, some men are created eunuchs by other men and some are eunuchs for the sake of the gospel, but some are more eunuchs by nature. And he says, maybe we have a situation with transgender people who are, would fall into that category of eunuchs by nature. And so there's obviously a wide range of opinions there and lots of different evidence and, and uh, arguments that can be articulated. Um, and I think it created a really important conversation, but let's be honest, a really scary conversation, a really difficult conversation. And one of the things that makes it difficult is we are just now learning uh, some of the science behind gender, and this is happening so fast that it's hard to keep up with it. When Paul and I first started researching this, the science was at this level, and by the time we finished it, a lot of the science that we thought we knew it when I'd started the project had almost kind of changed. And so it, it's difficult to stay up with it. So I, if, if readers are, are if uh, readers of the book or, you know, people listening right now feel sort of overwhelmed by this, I get it. That, mm-hmm. was, my, that was my response as well. All right. Um, Peter, your initial thoughts to this. Yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, first of all, mm-hmm. you've obviously been teaching theology since the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And, and this is a topic you reference how fast it's all sort of emerged upon us. I mean, we've been swept by a tsunami of gender conversations over these last five years. I mean, I can't imagine any of this was on your radar when you first started teaching ethics and theology in the 2000s. So this breakneck speed, where, where do you go, Jim, to sort of try to find some reliable things in which to stand with this, knowing that there's so many different views and there's so many different ways of thinking about it and as the tsunamis come, like how are you processing what seems to be the most reliable in all of this? Yeah, you know, so that's a great question. Um, uh, because the science changes so fast, you don't want to hitch your boat to the, well, I saw this article and this so, this solves all the questions because, <laughs> you know, like three three months later, there's a new article and it messes everything all up. And um, so what I try to do is, and I think this is a really important task, is that 
we have to learn to, with respect to these issues, hold a lot of the evidence at arm's length for a while. Um, people ask me, well, what do you think on this? And I'm like, you know what? I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm, yeah, sure, we did this book, but I'm still unpacking this information and working on it. And there are some things that I said it kind of do kind of fall, come down on. Um, but there's not too much that I'll just dig in and say, we got, we have to believe this. And we're still really processing these things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, I mean, 20 years ago was the issue of homosexuality that we're all wrestling with, but the question of transgender issues was not on our radar. And I don't think it has, it was really on, uh, people's radar until about five years ago, it started shifting maybe six years yeah. ago. And in the last two years, it's like everywhere. Um, and so I want I want to avoid being too reactive and drilling down on, you know, this is the only way to think about this, because uh, I do think, like I say, things are changing quickly. When I think of some of the trends that I've heard about where there are certain schools where um, there could be an alternative school where it seems that there is a, a tendency of a collection of students deciding that they're going to sort of be transgender. Yeah. Almost like it's the, the, the new wave of rebellion. Am and I off base on that? Not at all. It's actually very common, and it's very worrisome. Uh, the most worrisome expressions of a lot of this is not with, say, 28-year-old people who are articulating this sense that they've had for a long time that their gender is, you know, a little bit off relative to other people. It's when this conversation starts affecting how six-year-olds start thinking about themselves. And uh, then we are in a situation where it's, it's kind of uh, popular to have questions and identity issues surrounding this. Uh, and that, and that, beca- that create the problem is that creates its own problems. The people who are already sort of confused and trying to understand life. Let's be honest. Th- how many 13 year olds can figure out life? Not many. But <laughs> then on top of that, you're creating a gender dysphoria where they mm-hmm. can't understand, you know, how they are in their own body and how they express themselves. It, it's it just s- layers of difficulty upon difficulty. Um, and it, and it does, it's not a recipe for um, positive growth and understanding yourself. And, and so it is difficult. And, it, and I, this is one of the things that I'm most worried about this and why I sort of kind of preach, hey, let's be careful here. That's, you know, let's be careful about how we engage this, you know, maybe more conservative voices, but also the stampede toward, well, let's transition these six-year-olds six when they have some sense that they're not really sure about their agenda. Whoa, hey, now, let's, let's not be crazy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's being careful and not being reactive is a really important part. On, uh, and here's the deal. Um, research shows that like 93% of adolescent gender dysphoria resolves itself by, um, you know, late teens or 20, early 20s. And that's interesting. Dr. Jim Bilby is my guest, and we are uh, also joined in the studio by Dr. Peter Kapsner. If you have a question or an issue you would like uh, us to elaborate on a little bit, let us know. Text only, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're chatting about Jim's book, Transgender Identities, Four Views. And it seems that there's this, the mood in the moment that where people are sort of thinking, okay, now I'm going to change my identity. It kind of seems crazy. Yeah, I mean, in certain contexts, uh, people have lost the belief that gender is determined by our DNA or determined by our genitalia or Mm -hmm. expressions or anything like that. And there are people who understand gender as purely socially constructed. So it's more like, you know, what style of dress. So Mm -hmm. I I, I change my sweatshirt and I put on a shirt. Uh, I change my gender and I put on, try on a different gender and I try on a a non-gendered perspective or a pan-gendered perspective. And so uh, some of these some of these perspectives have gotten pretty radical to where you can uh, change your gender again with the mood in the moment, mm. and that uh, you know. So again, for the one, if if we're talking about adults, that's like okay, interesting, complex, not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but where it gets really, really uh, unhelpful is with. Uh, kids, oh, yeah. you know, and sometimes very young kids that we push on them a level of, you know, you have any options, you can do whatever you want. And we, but we, and we think we're helping them, but we're not, we're, cre- we're destabilizing them in ways that is really unhelpful when everything else in their life is destabilized and uncomfortable and difficult. Yeah. I think about the power of sort of social contagion, right. And the power of, uh, of suggestion is that some of the ways in which our behaviors work is that if the possibility exists and gets suggested, then pretty soon I can start processing that in my life. And pretty soon I might want to try that sort of thing on for size. And it seems like the the rise of transgender incidents is perhaps less about, hey, we're finally coming aware to what's always been true about life. And it's much more about sort of the newest way to socially express yourself and maybe even find a sense of belonging. If you can kind of say, hey, I'm this or expressing that way, you get seen and and, and and people will then maybe approve of your choices. Yeah. I mean, so here's the deal. My, uh, I, at one level, I am very happy that we're having this conversation because there were people, say, when you're in, you're in my generation, yeah. uh, that struggled, had gender dysphoria, but this, we just didn't talk about this. And so they suffered in silence and they didn't feel like this was something that they could bring up with. There was not a listening board. It wasn't a fa- safe conversation. Um, so at one level, it's a positive thing that we're able to engage this conversation, that we encourage it. The problem is we haven't just opened the door. We've thrown the door wide open. We've kicked the door down. We've run the door through a shredder, and we've now <laughs> forcing all sorts of really unhelpful conversations on six-year-olds who, you know, a six-year-old wonders, I don't throw the ball as well as Timmy and then, oh, now, oh, wonder if I'm female or something right. like that. Right. And, that, and that's just the very definition of unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of uh, sense of historical precedent? I mean, sometimes these things work in cycles when you study theology where other cultures, other people have thought in a similar way. Or is this relatively new in terms of like world history, this idea that we're going to divorce our sense of gender from whatever our biology might be? And, and what did you find in your research yeah. with that? So it's very interesting that there are many cultures that have... Uh, the concept of a third gender. So there are uh, Native American cultures, there are uh, Southeast Asian cultures, 
that have the concept of a third gender. In fact, there are some people who think that uh, ancient Hebrew uh, had that notion and, and ancient Greek had or, or biblical Greek had that notion with, with this reference to a, just a eunuch that mm-hmm. Matthew just threw out there uh, in, in ways that were supposedly like clear, right? Um, so there are other places that have had this notion of a third gender, but that is maybe mo- best thought of as a person that didn't fit neatly into the binary. Okay. But what we've done is we've wanted to create an entire continuum of options that, you know, everything is on the table and that's what's probably un- unhealthy. I think a good way to think about this is notion of the analogy. And this is when I teach my students, I like help them. I throw out the idea of twilight, right? So right now it's day out in like, uh, well, unfortunately, it's only like a couple hours, but in you know, like 12 hours, it's going to be dark. It'll mm-hmm. be night. There's that weird time in the middle between those that we're not quite sure if it's day or whether it's night. We call that twilight. But the existence of twilight is not an argument against the distinction between night and day, right? It just means there's kind of that middle category where we're not entirely sure. It's one thing for us Christians to acknowledge there are some legitimate twilight cases. There are some places where we're not sure about how uh, how to understand people, and we know that they have a hard time understanding themselves, and that we need to be as compassionate as we can possibly be coming around them in you know without judgment and try to help them understand things. But where I get very nervous, again, is with, oh, there's no such thing as day and night. It's all twilight. Mm-hmm. And then that's just, that, that's, that, that, I think it's really unhelpful for people. Here's a practical question from a listener. What do we do when someone we know changes their gender identity? One of my coworkers is in, the, is in a same-sex marriage and switched from female to male, including changing her name. I wondered if it was because she felt embarrassed as a same-sex couple, but we were afraid to ask. As a Christian, how do I relate to him, her? What if my belief that you don't do that puts risking my job? Mm. Well, so this is a difficult one, right? So in our culture, we've now, this is on the table. Mm -hmm. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. The interesting question is, how do I love my neighbor here? Mm -hmm. When my neighbor might be deeply confused about this and there might be layers of confusion that I that you, you don't even have access to that they're wrestling with and wondering through and that uh, society has put this on the table for them as an option and they've walked through this door. Um, I think we want – I think we as Christians, our first question is how do we love them? How do, Coming around them like with, well, Christians say this isn't okay, they don't need to know that or – more accurately, they already know that. They're very aware that there's all sorts of segments of society that, do, that don't approve of them. How do we, though, show that, yeah, we, I know that there's some complexities in this, and I don't necessarily agree with all of how you're doing this, you know, but I still love you as a person. I treat you as a person who's of infinite worth, loved by the creator. You know, I mean, child of the king. That's, that's what I think these people need to know they don't need to know our precise hermeneutical interpretation of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that would be my advice, to start with figuring out how to show your love to them. If you can really, really nail that, then we can move on to other things. You know, I think generally speaking, we Christians have plenty of struggle just figuring that one out. I would agree. Yeah, I think so often, too. We, uh, there's a lost art of playing the long game. 
a little bit. And and I think about the the father of the prodigal son, right? No matter what that father would have said in that moment when the son was demanding the inheritance and leaving and turning his back on his father's house, there wasn't anything in that moment that that father would have said that suddenly would have been like, oh, I guess I'll turn around right now. There there sort of had to be the the walking out of life's choices. And, And if we believe that some of these things are inconsistent with God's kingdom, it does mean that they're ultimately not going to end well. And so can we be ready uh, in the posture of the father who is always looking out at the horizon for that turn, right? And then runs and welcomes and says, welcome back home. The idea, I've been seeing some work uh, from some theologians recently saying it's time for the church to play the long game. We're not not going to be able to stop all of this right now, but can we prepare as a church um, to be increasingly walking in wholeness in our own sexuality so that we can welcome the refugees that ultimately are going to be broken from this this long game, whatever that that might be generational long game. It might persist beyond us. Yeah, I I love that, Peter. I love that. Um, Jim, as I was thinking of these four views, I would say Owen. Uh, is the most conservative. Cer- certainly. Yeah. Certainly. And then it would be my guess that most listeners would be in that place. Yeah. You're on Faith Radio? Uh, probably. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's likely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's- the traditional Christian, hey, it's binary. Right. You know, let, let, let's let not make it too uh, too complicated. Mm-hmm. And Owen is aware, of course, that there's these other views, but right. he, he's going to just say, no, we, we Christians need to double down on the binary. And and so I think that is the most the the perspective that most people. Mm-hmm. And what would Yarhouse say? Because that was the second view, and I know that he is pretty popular in Christian circles as well. Yeah. Is there a sense in which Yarhouse would suggest that part of the process is moving your sense of gender back into greater alignment with the binary, or do you sort of live in the twilight as you reference? What would he say about this? He acknowledges that there are certain psychological situations that can leave people. Um, without any clear, simple binary. And so just saying, no, be more male, isn't going to be particularly helpful for these people. So somebody like Mark Yarhouse is not denying the ideal of the binary, but saying we are not in an ideal world. We're not in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. We're in Genesis 3 world. And all sorts of things are fractured that we would wish that they wouldn't be. So he is... uh, suggesting that we might be able to come along these side these people that are living in that twilight rather than just trying to push them to the binary. I did see a, a t-shirt that said uh, there are more than two genders and when you go to buy the t-shirt you pull the pull down menu and it says male or female. <laughs> I guess I guess it's a tricky question. It you know? is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you see? Just uh, we just have just a minute left here. What do you see? Sort of is needed in the next couple of years in this t- in the topic. Well, certainly we need to continue to do research. We continue need need to continue to uh, think about this issue. But if there's one thing that like listeners that are like hearing this and like, oh my goodness, this is this is just a mess. Hang on a little bit. It, you're right. It's going to get complex. It, it will be complex, but let's not be reactive and let's not, you know, kind of like um, uh, react out of fear to what might be happening. Um, I think it's crucial that we continue to engage in love. And love so it. how do we love our neighbor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner, thanks for being here. The dynamic duo once again. Mm. Nice to have you both in studio. We'll Great take a little here. break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Borgon will be joining me. Matter of fact, he was a professor of yours, Peter, wasn't he? He was indeed. Yeah, so we'll be back in a few minutes.
need to laugh. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Greg Borgon is in my studio, and he is my guest. Greg, welcome to the show. <laughs> You've had back. a busy day. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's good to be here, Bill. Always good to be We're here. We're talking a little bit about Ephesians 4 today. Yeah. I'm in the uh, Ephesians business right now, so this is exciting. I'm going to memorize the whole book of Ephesians this year. <laughs> Are you really? Mm-hmm, I am. Excellent. Yeah. So when can through, I test you? Um, well, I'm through about the first 12 verses in chapter 1. So, you know, what is it, the 14th? I'm not doing too bad. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But um, we all have a destiny to fill, don't we? Yeah, we do. You know, it's, it's this passage that we're going to be um, taking a look at today in uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians. It's just full, chock full of instruction on Christian living. And... Um, to set the, the kind of tone for the passage, actually, what I'd like to do is address verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 2 okay. uh, with our audience today, because it seems so appropriate. And I've called this um, study that I've done a, a fork in the road. Uh, the main point is simply this. We need to understand that we're not here passively just to go ahead and try to make it from one day to the next, but God's called us to go ahead and facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. So we have a destiny to fulfill, we have a contribution to make, we have a ministry to compete, complete, and we certainly have a legacy to leave, and we can determine what kind of legacy that will be. Now, that that's, you know, it, alone there's enough scripture to support all four of those, mm-hmm. but that's what the main point is. The enemy, however, uh, doesn't want us to fulfill our destiny. He doesn't want us to make a contribution. He certainly doesn't want us to complete our ministry, and he definitely doesn't want us to leave a legacy. Yeah, no He'd doubt. rather we just slide and glide through life and then just disappear off of the scene. So his objective is he wants us to crash and burn to bring somehow discredit upon God, to knock us kind of off track to, so that we don't reach our, our spiritual potential. So the enemy, I think, has a formula for spiritual atrophy or for impotency that he kind of injects at our weakest moments. So this fourth chapter of Ephesians um, kind of answers uh, some basic questions we have. And those questions are, how does a Christian lose his or her spiritual vitality? How does they, what are the signs of decay? How does, we, how, how does it begin to happen are we going to know it's happening, or is it after the fact? Where will it lead and if we don't do something about it? And what, we, uh, what can we do about it? Are there things we can do to keep us off the slippery slope? Um, or just what do we have ahead of us? What do we have to look forward okay, to? Okay, you're asking phenomenal questions. Yeah. And I want answers to all of these. <laughs> <laughs> well, a fork in the road really is a metaphor. It's based on a literal expression for a deciding moment in life when you have a major choice of options. And in this particular case, in this passage, there are two options. The fork in the road, you either can take the road of what I call degeneration or the road of regeneration. I love it. So beginning with verse 17. So I tell you this, Paul writes, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So figuratively signifying the whole round of activities of the individual life when we talk about our life or our walk, whether of, of an unregenerate, uh, unregenerate, unregenerative uh, walk or it's a, something that's going to give us life. In any case, it's possible to go ahead and resort back to a lifestyle we had before we came to Christ. Mm. 
It's possible to live once again as the Gentiles do. That is to think and act as you did before you became a Christian. Because those patterns are embedded before we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, the power of those patterns are broken, but they still reside in yeah. us. And that's what sanctification is all about, is removing those patterns. No. Yeah. And so we have victory progressively and in, in, uh, step by step over these, these patterns. But we can, if we're not careful, we can start living like we used to. Mm-hmm. Even though we've claimed the name, we're not in the game. Right. So let me just talk briefly about this power pack two, next two verses, 18 and 19 in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And I hope the listeners have got their Bibles open or they're looking at their iPad or their iPhone at this particular passage. 18, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Though there, within those two verses are eight steps that you continually um, get worse. You, your life just gets worse. But they're not in the order that they're presented. Now listen carefully how this passage is laid out. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So ignorance brings upon this darkening, this separation. But the ignorance itself isn't the cause. If we read on, that is in them due to what? The hardening of their hearts. So the beginning of this, uh, this journey down the road of degeneration begins with a hardening of the heart, a gradual hardening of the heart. So we start to build up a callus around our beliefs, our values, our attitudes and motives, because that's what the Bible means by heart. And we've been over that on on previous shows. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, it starts to get hard. The heart starts to get hard. It gets calloused. And so what happens is, is that over time, we all of a sudden start to lose our sense of awareness or our knowledge. So now ignorance comes in. Our perceptions lack the sense of reality or a basis of fact. Then once we start to become ignorant of things we weren't ignorant of before, a darkness starts to descend on us. It's like something pulls the wool over our eyes. Our understanding becomes obscured. It lacks clarity and accuracy. And then when that happens, we start to alienate ourselves from the things that give us life. Wow, this is not good. No. As a matter of fact, we remove ourselves from going to church. We don't hang around with people that can give us life. We end up separating ourselves because, you know, there's nothing but hypocrites in the church. I always say when somebody says that to me, well, where else are they going to go to church? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, is that all of a sudden now they become critics of what used to give them life because they're embarrassed by the life that they're now living. So the next step after the alienation or this separation is that we start to have a apathy about what we used to believe. So when you, when you look at this again, you'll see that the apathy is when we lose all sensitivity and then a next step of degradation happens, we give ourselves over to sensuality, our senses. All of a sudden now, instead of living by faith, we're living by our senses again, what we feel, what we hear, what we see, what we think. That's how we start living our lives, by our senses. And so then we surrender to these things, 
And then we begin to experiment in areas we would stayed away from for so long wow. or that we just left when we came to Christ. So we're right back where we started. That's what the, uh, the passage actually means. We start living as we did as Gentiles again. Mm-hmm. And so after that happens, then we just become satiated. We end up going ahead and just getting involved in all kinds of activities that bring dishonor upon the Lord. So that's the path. And once we start down that slippery slope of that road to degeneration, it's hard to regain our footing again, but it's not impossible. Because you can stop that downward progression or that slipping on that road, down that road, uh, any step of the way. The enemy wants to convince you you can't. He'd rather you move down it rapidly, mm-hmm. but you can, you can go ahead and change it. So now we pick up the passage again. So we've, we've seen what this road of degeneration looks like. So we pick up the passage in verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way, Paul's saying. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Because one of the quickest ways to stop that downward slide is to remove the lies from your life and to replace it with God's truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, in other words, if you're slipping and you're sliding, you need to hold on to my teaching. You need to understand what the truth is. Then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the answer is in the truth and in the embodiment of the truth, which is Jesus Christ. So the other road at this fork in the road is the road to regeneration as opposed to the road to degeneration. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, what's interesting about this passage, when you look at it in the Greek, uh, which is much more definitive in many cases than, than English is in certain places, that is, and this is one of them, the putting on or the putting off and the putting on is a one-time event. It's not something you do every single morning or every time you're struggling. The enemy wants you to believe it's every day, but the Bible's clear, especially with the tense in the Greek that's, that's being used here. You put off the old self, and you put on the new self. It's not a refashioned old self. It is a new self. And the ongoing activity, though, is what follows. Continual activity throughout one's life to be made new in the attitude of your minds. That's done continually. That's why being exposed to the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's the scalpel God used to cut out the decay that's caused by being exposed to that road of degeneration. So what needs to happen is, is that we need to remind ourselves, wait a minute, that's the old life. I'm no longer a slave to that. The enemy wants me to believe I am, but I'm no longer a slave to it. I have a new life. 
but I still have some patterns, some residual habits that need to be eradicated, that mm-hmm. need to be removed. And that's why I need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who gives me the ability to do that incrementally. So that's pretty powerful, wouldn't you agree? Very powerful. And I didn't know the putting off and putting on was a, a one-time event. Yeah, yeah, uh, the I, I, Again, I would think that there are many listeners that would think that was a an ongoing thing. Yeah, that you'd have to do it every time you were struggling. That's yeah. not that's not the case. Interesting. When, when Christ gives you a new identity, he doesn't take it back from you the next day if you blow it. Yeah. He gives it to you. You, par, you are part of him. The Spirit of God is living in you. You've been given a new passport, as we talked about on previous shows. It's called the, the citizenship of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And with a new constitution, a new bill of rights, and God just doesn't pull that from you. As a matter of fact, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. No one can take that from us. Mm-hmm. So the putting off and the putting on is a one-time event. The struggle is dealing with the residual patterns that attend us, that accompany us, that follow us into our relationship with mm-hmm. Christ. All so, right. Um, I think we're going to take a break here, Greg. Can we, can we, can we do that? <laughs> yeah, I guess we could. I, I, I don't want to take a break. I'm sorry. I got uh, carried away, didn't no, I, No, I'm Bill? carried away listening, too. So uh, let me take a break. Dr. Greg Borgon is in studio. We're talking about Ephesians chapter 4. And if you want to head to heartofawarrior.org, that is his website, heartofawarrior.org. We'll be back in just 90 seconds with Dr. Greg Borgon. Show Dr. Greg Borgon's in studio. Heartofawarrior.org is his website. I'm loving this, Greg. The road to <laughs> degeneration or the road to regeneration. Those are the choices. It's one fork. You get to take a pick. Yeah, that's it exactly. So when we're talking about daily renewal, we said, again, that the putting on and the putting off is a one-time event, but the renewal is an ongoing exercise of, of discipline, really. So daily renewal is required to change your worldview, to change your heart, to change your core beliefs, your sin. I mean, we might be able to articulate a belief system that often bears little correlation with how we actually behave, but how we behave over time is absolutely correlated to what we believe. And if the behavior is corrupt, then we got to go back and renew or change out or move out of there and replace that lie with truth and start living in accordance with with the truth. So replacing your core beliefs with truth of God's word will establish a godly value system. A godly value system will inform your attitudes or your worldview about life, and your attitudes about life will control your motives, and your controlled motives will produce godly behavior. So the practical habits for renewal um, that this passage goes on to discuss, let's look at verse 25. Number one, it says, therefore, each of you, verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So we're at number one, and the, the habits for renewal, speak the truth about yourself and to others. Be honest. Your perceptions about reality, folks, are not reality. I don't care what you say. Your perceptions are not reality. Reality is reality. So mm-hmm. sometimes we need to adjust those perceptions to truth. Verse 25, 26. If 
you, your anger, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So number two, a habit would be to control your anger. There's such a thing as legitimate anger, but more often than not, it's anger because somehow our agenda has been corrupted or been interfered with. So control your anger, this passage says. Verse 27 tells us, don't become entrapped by the evil one. It says, and do not give the devil a foothold. I would love for you to say a little bit more about that, Greg. What is giving the devil a foothold? Giving the devil a foothold is practice sin in the same direction over an extended period of time begins to work its way into the woof and fabric of their very soul. Okay. And so you start operating from something that now is subconscious, that you forgot even the origins of it. Like, for instance, initially being exposed to pornography over time. The danger of that is, is that it keeps erupting in our life in terms of what it does to us, and it becomes a stronghold. And oftentimes we need more of our of, of, uh, Christians around us and prayer, and sometimes we just need to go ahead and flee from the enemy. It says, submit to God, flee from, uh, uh, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But that stronghold is an embedded pattern of sin that could be initiated by a circumstance, an event, a person, a tragedy. Uh, and then we just begin to operate as if it's a part of who we are. It says, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's just just my thorn in the side, mm-hmm. which is then, um, you know, just kind of negating the truth of God's word that says we're to live an abundant life. So that stronghold could be set up when we sin in the same direction okay. over an extended period of time. Okay. All right, then it says in verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So number four is put on an honest day's work. Number five, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. So number five is speak to uplift, not to tear down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what these verses, and I'll finish up here in just a second, these verses are telling us, here's a pattern of life. Here's an instruction how to go ahead and live a Christian life so that you aren't susceptible to that fork in the road that takes you down the road of degeneration, but now you're on the road to regeneration. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't play to the crowd. Live for the Lord. Understand that when you live your life for an audience of one and you focus entirely on that, everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. That audience of one is our creator. So then we look at verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with uh, every form of malice. So number seven, release your bitterness. Don't hold a grudge. Number eight, Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Number eight is choose not to take revenge. Forgiveness is the initial step of true forgiveness is choosing not to take revenge. By whatever power you have available, you're not exercising it to harm them. And then number eight, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. So number eight is not only choose not to seek revenge, but you have to go ahead and and make sure that 
your eyes are focused on the narrow road and not the wide road. And you need to understand that you have everything you need to live a life of godliness, according to the Scripture. So we don't need to go down that other road. We need to, however, be on the road that starts to bring life and chips away those patterns and those habits so that we slowly become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Because in the earlier part of chapter 4, that talks about that being the purpose of the church. So... Uh, Two other things I would say in conclusion uh, with these verses is uh, simply this. Uh, One, we're to seek out personal mentors. If we want to stay off that road of degeneration, we can't take the journey by ourselves. We need to seek out people that can help us along the way. Sometimes we need a sage on the stage, somebody Mm that will give us direction. Other times we need a guide by the side. And then what I would encourage the listeners to consider is to keep a journal, recording God's activity in your life. It's so easy to forget what God's been doing in your life. Oftentimes when I work with men and they start to make transformational changes, it's not as obvious to them as it is to those that are closest to them because it's incremental. Mm-hmm. With unveiled face, beholding his likeness, we're being changed into his glory from one step to another. So it's incremental and sometimes imperceptible by those of us going through it. Somebody close to us sees the change. It was a powerful thing the other night. I'm, I'm working with 45 men at, at my church, taking them through phase one of Heart of a Warrior. And one of the men read a, a note his wife wrote to him. There were six uh, sessions in. We meet every uh, second and fourth Tuesday. And she was telling him what she saw in him and the changes she saw in him. Wow. It brought almost everybody in that room to tears. And I said, there's the proof in the pudding, guys. It's one thing for you to tell me you're changing. It's another thing for your spouse to tell me you're changing. I'll believe your spouse. And here's a powerful testimony. She noticed it in him before he noticed it. But it took his initiation to work at these things, doing some of these things we've just been talking about. So when we keep a journal, it's, a, it's really a journal of remembrance. You know, in Psalms, it tells us, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watchness of the night. Another place in Psalm, I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. In 106 of Psalms, we read, When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea. And then in 143, we read, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on your works and consider what uh, your hands have done. So the overarching principle, Bill, in this whole journey we call life is found in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, by my estimation. It says, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So may your life be a pleasing aroma. I tell people all the time about the definition I give legacy. Legacy is the aroma left in the nostrils of those God's called you to influence long after you're gone. And some of us are going to leave a stench. Mm. And God wants us to leave a pleasing aroma, something that lingers in the nostrils of all that came within our sphere of influence. So I think this chapter four is just chock full of deep truth that we need to get our heads around and we need to start incorporating and applying in our life 
because it's the truth that sets us free. Mm-hmm. Well, you asked so many provocative <clears throat> questions, Greg. How does a Christian lose their spiritual vitality? What are the signs of decay? Um, how does it begin to happen? I mean, these are all questions that we're, we're nervously asking ourselves from time to time. You know, we feel like we've gotten spiritually flat from time to time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what are the what are the signs? What are the red flags we should be looking out for? This is a great chapter to go to and yeah. say, am I on the road to G- degeneration or on the road to regeneration? That's right. That's absolutely right. It's a right. powerful teaching um, on this chapter of Ephesians 4. And thank you so much for it. It's just been oh, wonderful. Oh, my privilege, Bill. Oh, my. You know, and because you can't always gauge where you're at. I mean, it's the old thing your parents used to do. They used to make you stand up against the door and they yeah, would take yeah, a yeah. pencil. And, you know, you you always kind of felt you were the same height, and then you look and you went, well, look how much yeah, I've grown yeah. in a year. Yeah, it's always in retrospect and uh, that you see, oh, yeah, there has been some changes. Right, right. I remember when I, when I went from 5'8 <laughs> to 5'8 and a half, I was like, <laughs> it was such a big day for me. Well, I'll, I I'll never that. see that height. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. Heartofawarrior.org is his website. It's a powerful place to go visit and look and read his blog and plenty of books to buy as well. That wraps up our show. If you missed any of it, I practically insist to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check it out right from the beginning. Thanks for listening today, and thanks for supporting Faith Radio. You know I'm crazy about you. I just love you like crazy. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.